All right, this morning we're going to be continuing in our series in uh, Samuel. Uh, we're going to be looking at Samuel chapter 3, verses 1 through 21. And I thought it was really fitting that we got a chance to hear from our Mexico mission uh, team this morning because I, th- I always think the Mexico trip is a great chance to uh, show teenagers that they're, they're not too young to serve the Lord. Um, and, and often I think it's an even better reminder to adults that teenagers are not too young to serve the Lord. Um, and uh, the passage today that we're going to look at involves the teenager being called to serve the Lord. Um, Samuel is likely a, a teenager in this passage uh, that we're going to be looking at today, and he gets called to serve the Lord. So we'll dive right in here and look at verses 1 through 7 of chapter 3. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to Yahweh in the presence of Eli, and the word of Yahweh was rare in those days, for there was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of Yahweh where the ark of God was. Then Yahweh called Samuel, and he said, Here I am, and ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call, lie down again. So he went and lay down. And Yahweh called again, Samuel. And Samuel rose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call my son, lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know Yahweh. The word of Yahweh had not yet been revealed to him. All right, so we see a couple things in this passage. First, we see this idea that the word of God was rare in those days. Now, in this context, that primarily means that there was no prophet, right? That there was very little prophecy. The word of God wasn't coming to men and women who would then be called to declare it to the people. But we also know from this passage that obedience to God's word was also rare in those days, that there were not people obeying God's word, the word that they had, which in this case at this time would have been primarily the the law of Moses, right? The first five books of the Bible, they were not being obedient to it. Um, So there's none of that. And then there's also no prophecy. So there's just not a lot of the word of God going out. And what is going out is not being responded to uh, well by the Israelites at large. So then the question we might ask is, why was the word of God rare in those days? Why is this the case? That's an important question for us as we might describe our own cultural situation in a similar manner. We know that spiritual life in Israel was bleak at this time, that there were few men and women who were being faithful and worshiping Yahweh as they were called to do, few who were obeying the scriptures. We also know that the priesthood was corrupt and probably turned more people away as a result of that, right? If you go to worship and then you're faced with these priests who are taking more than they should and you see them, you know, taking the the, the women who are serving in the temple, dragging them off to go sleep with them. It, it, you're not going to be like super excited to come again, right? If, they, if, you, can, if you know they're not, they're not doing the right thing. And that, again, is certainly true that we see that in, in the world today, where you see a lot of people, a lot of people who, who claim Jesus as their Savior, claim him as their Lord, who would go, yeah, I don't go to church because I went to this church, and this is what this pastor did. Can you believe it? So I'm never going to church again. But we see here the faithful men and women are still coming and offering their sacrifices regardless of what the leadership is doing. They're remaining faithful. 
And that's what we are called to do. So it's difficult to say which came first. Did the, the spiritual malaise come first or the rarity of the word of God? Which caused the other, right? Did the, did the, was the word of God so rare and that led to people being, being spiritually negligent? Or did the spiritual malaise of the society, did that cause the word of God to become rare? And we may never know. The, the passage doesn't tell us. But what we do see is those men and women who are being faithful regardless of whatever is going on around them. We also see in this passage this reference to Eli's blindness. We've seen it in the previous passages when they've talked about Eli. It's talked about the fact that his vision is fading. And this is both a physical reality and a metaphor for his behavior throughout, this, throughout, throughout his life. Right, that he seems to be blind or at least unwilling to act on the corruption that he sees around him. He doesn't see his, himself, we don't see any accusations about him doing the corrupt things that the other priests are doing. He seems to be doing what he's supposed to. But he's unwilling to act, unwilling to lead, unwilling to correct the situation. And then we also see Samuel here. Samuel is sleeping in the temple, right? And we don't know if he did this all the time, but we do know that the priests were called to keep guard over the tabernacle, to keep guard over the temple. <coughs> Excuse me. We see this in Numbers chapter 1, verse 53, where it tells us the Levites shall camp around the tabernacle of the testimony so that there may be no wrath on the congregation of the people of Israel, and the Levites shall keep guard over the tabernacle of the testimony. So this was their task. They were to, wherever Israel camped, and at this point they're in the promised land, so they have a more permanent situation. It's not the temple that we think of that is eventually built by Solomon. This is but some more permanent version of the tabernacle that's referred to as a temple. They're one and the same thing, though. So the Levites are meant to live around it and to care for it and to guard it. So it would make sense that a priest is meant to sleep in the, in the sanctuary and in, inside of the temple uh, to keep guard over it overnight. And with how corrupt these priests are, it makes sense that they might have had this, this faithful family come and give this child to the Lord. Hey, this child's dedicated to the Lord. He's meant to serve in the temple all of his life. Uh, and they go, hey, you know, this kid, none of us, if we have him sleep in the temple, we'll never have to take the night shift again. So that seems pretty likely to me. So it seems likely that Samuel lived and, and worked and slept in the temple. It was his entire life. He's there every night sleeping in the temple, keeping guard, keeping watch over it. And yet... Well, then Samuel thinks he hears Eli calling for him. So again, Eli's the high priest. He should be sleeping in his, his tent should be set up next to the tabernacle. So Eli thinks he hears, or Samuel thinks he hears Eli, gets up, comes out. He's, you know, you know it's probably happens sometimes that, that Eli calls him in the middle of the night. And Eli's like, no, no, I wasn't calling you. Go back to sleep. Stop bothering me. Happens a second time. Stop bothering me. Go back to sleep. He thinks it's Eli, but he's hearing this voice. We know that it's God. God's calling him, but he just keeps thinking he's hearing Eli. Why? The passage tells us that he did not yet know Yahweh. 
It isn't just that Samuel didn't know that God was speaking to him. He didn't know God yet. That should be instructive and sobering for us. This reality that Samuel, who's living in the temple, sleeping in the temple. Now, I know a lot of you in your own testimony includes like a phrase that says something like, well, I grew up in the church, right? No, Samuel grew up in the church, right? Samuel lived, worked, slept in the church. Like he's, if this was today, he'd be sleeping right here. You know what I mean? Like he, he's living there and yet he still doesn't know God. And knowing God is crucial to all of it. Knowing God is the primary thing. Jesus tells us in his high priestly prayer that that is the key to eternal life. Let's look at John chapter 17, verses 1 through 3. It should be up there before this, though. Is it not? I'll just read it. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. The key to our eternal life is knowing Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Our Lord meaning we turn our life over to him. Our Savior meaning that we accept the forgiveness that he's given us. We respond to the grace that he has proclaimed to us, that he paid for on the cross. We make him our savior and then we turn our life over to him. We give him charge over it. We make him Lord. We have a relationship with him. We don't just know about him. What this means, bottom line, is your Christian stats are meaningless. Are meaningless. Doesn't matter you know, how many times you've come to church, how often you go to church, doesn't matter how many times you've read the Bible, doesn't matter how often you pray, it doesn't matter uh, how many Bible verses you have memorized, how many good works you've done, right? And for those of us who are like achievers, you might go like, whoa, 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 wait, wait, but, but my stats are really good and that's not fair. Do you know how long I've been going here? You know how long I've been coming to church? You know, I don't even skip I don't skip for, only, I only don't come if there's a really good reason. You know, I don't skip because the Niners are on or something. Like, I, I, don't, I don't miss church for stuff like that. There's something really big that maybe I'll miss. But like, no, I, general, I, I'm there all the time. I pray almost every day. I got some really good stats. I've, done, I've gone on several mission trips and, and I do good works and I serve in ministries at the church. Like, I want credit for that. I don't want, this guy has done nothing. He just became a believer last week. And we're saying we're the same in Jesus' eyes? Yep, that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. When Jesus looks, when God looks at us, he sees Jesus' righteousness because even our best is not good enough. It doesn't matter how good your stats are. The question is, do you know him? And the, the, the dangerous part of this is a lot of people with really good stats don't know God at all. Don't know Jesus at all. There's many testimonies you'll hear of people who say, I was going to church for years and then I finally realized that I did not understand the gospel. I had never truly accepted the forgiveness that God had given me. There's a lot of people in the church today who are regular attenders who are fully going on a works-based righteousness program. That they go because this is about being good. 
and about doing good things. And if our good works outweigh our bad works, then we go to heaven. That's not how it works. The question is, do you know him as your Lord and Savior? You must know him intimately as your Lord and Savior. You must give your life over to him. You must accept the forgiveness that he's offered you because your stats don't mean a thing. And just like Samuel, he's sleeping in the temple. He's living in the temple, serving every day, and he doesn't know God. But he's about to. We'll look here next at verses 8 through 14. Yahweh called Samuel again the third time, and he rose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that Yahweh was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down. If he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Yahweh, for your spirit hears. So Samuel went and lay down in this place. And Yahweh came and stood among, as, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, speak for your servant hears. Then Yahweh said to Samuel, behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. So after the third time, Eli finally realizes that God is calling him. Eli knows. He's like, oh, I see what's happening. He keeps waking me up because he's hearing a voice calling him. It's not me. It's God that's calling him. And so he tells him, instructs him how to respond. He tells him how to respond. He says, and, and it's, it's great. It, this is also instructive for us. He tells him to say, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. Speak for your servant hears. The implication there is, I'm going to do what you say. He's essentially telling Samuel to respond in the same way that he's been responding to Eli. Right? Eli, he, he's been hearing this voice calling, and every time he gets up right away and runs to Eli's side and says, what? I'm here. Here I am. What do, you, what do you want? He's ready to react. He's ready to do what Eli tells him to. And he says, have the same attitude toward God. Say, speak for your servant hears. Your servant hears, meaning I'm willing to serve. I'm willing to do whatever you call me to. I'm ready to respond. But again, in this, we see that Eli is such a tragic figure. Because although he doesn't seem to know God himself. He knows a lot about God. He even knows the right thing to tell Samuel in this case. But he doesn't have a relationship. He doesn't love God enough to actually obey him, even though he knows a lot about God. He seems to execute his priestly tasks adequately, but he won't punish his own sons for their transgressions or remove them from their duties. So instead, Yahweh spoke to Samuel. And he tells him that God is going to punish Eli and his family once and for all. It's punishment for the iniquity that he knew, right? He's not saying, oh, I'm punishing him for something he didn't know that he did wrong. No, he knew full well what had happened. He knew full well what was going on under his watch, and he refused to do anything. He had been warned by a prophet already about what God would do if he didn't change. God had been patient with Eli, and yet he did not respond appropriately. He did not respond to God's kindness and patience. 
And that's what we're called to do. We see this in Romans chapter 2. The Apostle Paul speaks of this, where he says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge and practice such things, and yet do them, those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? And because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. This is a very tough passage to accept. Right? What he's telling us is, when we are judgmental with people, or when we choose to judge people, we're judging them for the same things we're doing, right? And, and sometimes you probably think, well, that's not true. The things that I'm judging people for, I would never do, right? And, and sometimes that's true, but we all know the person who has been judgmental, and we go, but they do the same thing. Like, why are they being judgy? So even if you think that's not true about you, like, watch out, right? Because it's pro- somebody else probably thinks that you're also guilty of the thing you're being judgmental about. But regardless, you're not perfect, right? Regardless, you've fallen short. You've failed to love God and love others, which is the, encompasses all the commandments, right? So, so we're all guilty. And he's saying you're judging people and you're not repenting. You're not changing yourself. And you presume on God's kindness, forbearance, and patience. Saying when we don't respond to the time God is giving us, because God is giving us time, right? That's what really all of this time is about. From the time Jesus ascended to this day and until he comes back is a time of God's kindness and patience in which he is allowing us time to respond, allowing us time to repent. But so many of us presume on God's kindness, forbearance, and patience. Some believers go so far as to say, oh, God will never actually punish or judge anyone, right? That there's a whole group of people who call themselves believers who presume on God's kindness and patience so much that they say, well, there actually is no hell. No, there will be. God's wrath will be, will be revealed. And just as Eli says, he was, he was presuming on God's kindness and patience. He's, he's not repenting when he has the chance to repent. You see that very clearly. He's had time. A prophet already came to him and said, God is going to judge you. God is going to execute judgment if you do not change. And yet he did nothing up until this point when when Samuel now hears the word. We should not be like Eli. We should allow God's kindness to lead us to repentance. We'll look lastly here at verses 15 through 21. Samuel lay until morning, then he opened the doors of the house of Yahweh, and Samuel was afraid to tell the vision of Eli, to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, here I am. And Eli said, what was it he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you, and more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, it is Yahweh, let him do what seems good to him. And Samuel grew, and Yahweh was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. 
And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of Yahweh. And Yahweh appeared again at Shiloh, for Yahweh revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of Yahweh. So Samuel lay there until morning. I think it's interesting that it says he, he just lay back down. He lay until morning, didn't sleep until morning. I don't think any of us would have slept again after, after that encounter. So he lay there until morning, and then when it was morning, he opened the doors to the house of Yahweh. He opened the doors of the temple, as again, as he probably did every morning. Right? He's, he's there all day, and he's there when they, when, when they open up in the morning. He opens the doors, and he goes and sees Eli, and he's afraid to tell Eli what God had said. And rightfully so. I mean, Eli is essentially the primary father figure for him. Right? He still knows his biological father and mother, but Eli is the one who's in his life every day. He's the father figure. He's kind of an adoptive father for him, and he even calls him my son. Right? He says, my son, what did he say to you? And Eli ends up threatening him that with the punishment that God had told him uh, that Eli would receive. You're like, you, you tell me what he said, tell me everything, or let God do to you and worse if you don't tell me, if you hold anything back. So Eli knew. Isn't it interesting? Like, Eli knew that God was declaring punishment. Even though he's not responding, even though he doesn't seem to have a relationship, he knows it's bad news. Right? He, doesn't, he doesn't actually know, but he knows because he knows where his heart has been. He knows how he's been reacting. So he knows that it's bad news. He knows it's punishment. And in response, he tells him this heartbreaking thing. He says, it is Yahweh. Let him do what seems good to him. What a heartbreaking response to hear from Eli. Right? Because He's theologically sound, right? He's saying, like, it's Yahweh. There's nothing I can do. It's Yahweh. He is all-powerful. He is sovereign. Let him do what seems good to him. But again, even now, he's not responding appropriately. He's not responding to this warning. It's still a warning at this point. It hasn't been executed yet. He could do something. He could respond in some way. We know that he could respond in some way because we've seen other biblical figures do it. Or we've seen Abraham when... When Abraham hears that God is going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, what does he do? He intercedes. Or he begs God not to do it. Right? And, he's, and he negotiates. He negotiates him down from, he's like, hey, what if there's you know, some, some righteous people there? And he slowly negotiates the number down until it's a small number and, and then asks God for that deal, right? He intercedes. He begs God not to do it. And that's not even his town. It's not even his town. Moses, when the, when the Israelites make the golden calf, God's plan initially, and I'm sorry, I have the references for you in the, uh, in the study guide if you want them. That uh, is from Genesis 18 with Abraham interceding for Sodom and Gomorrah. In Exodus 32, we see Moses intercede for the Israelites. They make this golden calf while he's up receiving the Ten Commandments and comes down and sees what they've done. And God's deal with him is, hey, let's just, uh, God, God tells Moses, like, I'm just going to wipe all of them out and we'll start over with you. Right? So essentially what he tells Moses, he's like, let's just start over with you. You can be the new Abraham. You have a bunch of kids and then we'll just start over 
get rid of these people. They're terrible. And what does Moses do? He intercedes. He prays for them. He asks God not to do it. He asks God to spare them. He asks God to be merciful. Here, Eli is dealing with the destruction of his own family. That God is going to destroy his own family, his children and grandchildren, and yet he does nothing. It hardly affects Eli personally. He's an old man at this point. He's about to die anyway. But he doesn't doubt that Samuel is telling the truth. He doesn't doubt that God is going to do it. He's just refusing to, he just won't do anything about it. He won't repent. He won't do anything. He doesn't doubt that Samuel is speaking the truth. He just won't do anything about it. In contrast, then, we see that Samuel grew and Yahweh was with him. Samuel grew as a prophet and he was faithful to speak and do all that God revealed to him. Notice that it says there that he let none of his words fall to the ground. Right? Let none of God's words fall to the ground, meaning everything he received from God, he spoke. Everything that he was told to do, he did. He didn't allow any of it to go to waste. He told people everything that God had told them to, to tell him. And everyone in Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, which is a way of saying like from, from coast to coast, right? It'd be our from sea to shining sea. From Dan to Beersheba, all of Israel knew that he was a prophet. His reputation spread, and God used Samuel for his own glory. We'll wrap up here with three takeaways for today's message. Number one, know God personally, not just about him. It's important that we know him personally as our Lord and Savior, that we accept the forgiveness that he's given us, and enter into a relationship with him in which we pray, in which we talk to him, in which we obey him, in which we know him personally. Not just know facts about him, but know him personally. Number two, be ready to respond when God calls. Right? Be ready to respond when he calls. Be ready to do what he says. Right? Be willing to have that phrase in your head, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So often, I think our prayers can turn into like a negotiation with God where we're like, okay, God, tell me what you think and then I'll decide whether I like it or not. And if I think it's a good idea, then we'll go forward. But like, let's work this out for something that we can both be happy with. But that's not the relationship. He is our king. He is our Lord. We are to follow him and obey him in everything. So when he calls, we should be ready to respond. And then lastly, repent when you're convicted. That's where we see Eli's primary failure here is he refuses to repent. He refuses to change when God has given him multiple opportunities to do so. When we're convicted, when the Holy Spirit speaks to us and tells us that we're off base, that we're doing something wrong, that we need to change, we should be ready to repent, ready to stop doing that and go and walk the other direction and follow Jesus. I'm going to pray here in just a minute, and then we'll take communion in remembrance of Jesus' broken body and shed blood for us. Then we'll sing one final song. And then after that, if you'd like prayer for anything, we'll have a prayer team that's available right over here. They would love to pray for you. You can just come up front and they will pray for you. Would you bow with me? Father, we thank you for this morning that we can come and read this word and learn from the examples of Samuel and his willingness and readiness to respond when you call. 
And also the cautionary tale of Eli and his hardness of heart, his failure to repent, his knowledge of you, but not intimate personal knowledge of you. God, I pray that each person here would be like Samuel, ready to respond and to know you. Pray these things in Jesus' blessed name. Amen.